welcome to Council's Table Podcast. I'm your host, Spencer O'Neill. This week on Council's Table Podcast, I speak with Crystal and Terry. Terry was a surprise guest that was unsure of participating, but once presented with the discussion, took the lead role. We discussed my friend and their son and brother, Josh. Josh is a young man we lost 10 years ago. This conversation was focused on drug court and his and their experience in drug court. However, in total, the conversation is a microcosm of a family's experience living through the opioid epidemic in the 2000s. Josh was addicted to opiates and started his addiction as a young man in Florida in a middle-class beach town in the early 2000s. As a young man that grew up in a similar circumstance and eventually grew to know and love Josh, I can tell you this story is not unique. The fact that it is not unique is a true travesty. At the end of this conversation, I left saying to myself, wow, they shared their heart. I'm sure that many people listening know people like Crystal and Terry and may have lived it themselves. I want to say to all those we lost, we love and miss you. To all those that lived the experience as a loved one and survived those they lost, thank you. To those people that are currently in active addiction, no matter what bridges you have burned, no matter how far you may have gone, there's no better time to turn back and build back those bridges than now. We need you and love you. In this episode, you will hear mentions of certain facilities such as Epic, DMRT, Stuart Marchman, Salvation Army, and Break the Cycle. These are all organizations and facilities in my local area that provide substance abuse treatment. As a public defender in this area, I'm involved almost daily in getting people into these programs. However, wherever you are, there are organizations with different names that are full of people that want to help. And you do not need to commit a crime to get the help if you want it. I want to thank these programs that assist my clients for trying to save lives. And now I present to you the Council's Table. Spencer O'Neill, and welcome to Council's Table. Uh, today I have with me Crystal and possibly Terry. We'll see if she decides that she wants to speak. Uh, but she's here as well. And we're going to discuss um, drug courts, as well as sort of the third-party perspective of families that deal with an addict within their family and going through the court system and what that experience was like. Um, So, Crystal, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Crystal, and... um my experience with dealing with uh, the drug court stuff was kind of complicated for my brother because it was hard to get him actually even into drug court. Um, it takes nonviolent felonies, but felonies nonetheless, <laughs> and then proof that they need to actually go to rehab or whatever. So that was always fun. Right. So, um, your brother's name was Josh, correct? Correct. All right. And when was he in drug court? Whew. 
geez. 2004? Okay. 2004, 2005, I believe. And when he was in drug court, uh, what got him into drug court? Um, him and one of his buddies decided that they were going to clear the buddy's mom's um, escrow account. She was a real estate agent. Uh, they were both in active addiction at the time. And, um, in fact, uh, the friend's mom didn't even want to press charges. I had to beg her to because it was a nonviolent felony. So it gave me some leeway with the courts okay. to try to get him some forced help. Um, who brought the idea of drug court to you? Um, Detective Williams at the time she was uh, when we were growing up she was a street cop uh, and then by that point she was a detective and it was her suggestion knowing that we were just trying to save him and knowing the family yeah knowing the family and the family's history now um, what was the active addiction that your brother suffered from it was predominantly opiates, um, oxycotton, uh, roxies, whatever. Uh, he was a needle user, though, so he would intravenously use just about anything. Towards the end, it didn't matter. And, I mean, I know that a lot of the times people are secretive about their, you know, their drug usage. Um, do you know, you know, approximately how old he was when drug usage became like an active addiction um, it became an active addiction in his early 20s before he had an active opiate addiction I mean he played he just that? like everybody else he drank and he did he was naughty but he wasn't an addict okay <clears throat> now you had mentioned that there was a detective Williams that brought drug court to your attention correct and that she was uh, a street cop that essentially you had kind of grown up around? Correct, and then and most, ended up... Most definitely an advocate for the family. She was an advocate for the family? She definitely became one, yeah. Um, now, you all, we're not going to say the name of the town, but you live in a pretty small beach community here in, in Florida, right? Correct. And it's grown a little bit. But, um, you know, at the time, how many police officers do you think were in the police department? Six. There were six. So, I mean, this is... At the time, it's a really a small little agency. Yes. Um, how did she first approach you about the idea of getting him into treatment? I actually reached out to her at my wit's end, and it was her idea to reach out to the accomplice's mother and ask for this because, again, the goal... One of the problems is is that when you're in active drug addiction, quite often when you have felonies, there's also um, violence. Violence is common in that community. So right. in this scenario, he had not yet had any violent felon felonies. So the way she saw it was is it would be an easy win to try to just get him in. He wasn't going to go himself. And he was getting more and more brazen and it was not in his character. This, this was not a character for him, but at the same time, it was an act of addiction. So um, I actually reached out to her 
because she had helped us in other scenarios throughout life in general. Right. You know, I mean, shoot, she caught me sneaking out when I was in friggin' 10th grade. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? My, my, um, I, she, they, I babysat her kid for punishment. Like, she was a really great lady and would always help, and this was her idea. And it ended up, it, it that part ended up working, actually, in the long run. It was some work, but it did work. So, I mean, that sounds like what you would want from community policing. Absolutely. Absolutely. She was amazing. Yeah. Always. Now, before, um, before drug court, uh, was Josh in trouble with the law ever? Little stuff, but nothing yeah. major. Did he ever spend, like, any significant time in jail? Not until Prior. this scenario. Did he ever spend any minor time in jail, like, more than, like, no. less than a week? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um... Was he ever on probation? No. no. Not, not until the drugs. Not until drug court. That Because he ended up spending time in jail for that. I actually, like when he got arrested for it, I actually had to petition the courts to consider him for drug. Alright, so... Do you have any knowledge as far as when drug court kind of started in this area? Um, I don't know when it started. I had just been pointed that direction by Detective Williams. And I don't think it had been very long. It was, it yeah, it was say. sort of, sort of new. Right. So drug court would have been relatively new in the early 2000s, Correct. right? Oh, yeah. I believe. <clears throat> now, early 2000s, um, I mean, you had mentioned earlier that, you know, some of the, the substances that he had issues with were, you know, Oxycontin, Roxy. Nice heroin if you could find it, probably. Correct. And, I mean, this is this puts us square in the middle of the opioid crisis, right? Correct. Absolutely. Yeah, he was totally a Him statistic in that. <laughs> yeah. Him and his father both, yeah. And when he went into drug court, um, do you know if he went to rehab first or if he did any sort of outpatient treatment? So he was already incarcerated and being held... And that was, like, because he was going for sentencing. And so I had put in the request um, before sentencing. He hadn't done any form of real rehab or anything before that. Um, he had gone into Stuart Marchman once or twice and gotten clean. Um, but not ever taken it seriously, really. He was just appeasing. Um, when you say that he went to Stuart Marshman for short periods of time to get clean, does that like, like a like a Baker Act, like a forty-two to seventy-two? He was report? never Baker Acted. He'd sign himself in. Okay. So he would just agree because he'd get caught doing something stupid. Um, but it, it, when you sign yourself in, you can sign yourself out. So I mean, he'd be there for like a week or yeah, yeah, a week. I think one time like a month, but it was still just the local one. It wasn't a like full-on rehab and. There was a point where they couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford it anymore. I say, Terry, how was that paid for? Was there insurance for that, or did you have to come up with money for that? He was already over 18, so he was doing his own thing. Okay. However he did it, he did his own thing. I will say that I think after drug court is when he went into the place down in Daytona. That was a part of his drug court. That was yes. the Salvation Army. At the Salvation Army, he was down there. And he did pretty well down there for a while. He yeah, did. totally bottom time. I I, um, I was encouraged. Now, before the Salvation Army, he actually went to another local facility, right? Didn't he go to DMRT? 
Yes, uh, that was the all male facility. Yes, and it was um, that was like an intake kind of facility. So but he didn't stay there, right? That's no, right. he only needed to be there. It's like um, so drug court it does have steps similar to like even AA or whatever. So you have to step up yeah, from when you start. So they sent him to an all male facility. Um, and he normally did okay in those facilities. Um, but he did that for like, I don't know, the first two months or whatever to give him just the basics to be able to live in a, in a, a like a halfway scenario or whatever. Um, and then whenever he completed what he had to do at the all male facility, because that, again, it's that facility was kind of private facility, but they, they would take in people to do this part. Um, then they turn around and move into the Salvation Army in Daytona Beach. And that was a co-ed um, scenario. And he did really well there, honestly. They were they were pretty good to him. I think you and I actually visited him there. Correct, multiple times. Yeah. Um, and then they also did, at that facility, they also still offered... Um, there was, like, counselors and stuff there all the time. So, like, and they were... They doted over them a little, you know. It's like if somebody really wanted to get clean, they really did have the opportunity and the support system if they chose to stay on that path. Absolutely. I mean, plenty of people don't. And that's the one great thing about drug court is, is even when he did mess up, yeah, he got arrested, he got picked up, he went to jail, he got his knuckles slapped, and then he went right back to rehab where he <laughs> had to start the whole process over again. Right. So. If I could, I'd like to speak on that for a moment. So. You know, the great, one of the great things, like you just said about drug court, is that part of recovery is relapse. Like, you expect Correct. relapse. And there's some understanding with that. The drug court it does have deep understanding of that. Now, it, like two rounds. Yeah, it comes with consequences. Of course. And, you know, you'll be rearrested, put back into jail. Your supervision will be increased. If you were having outpatient, you may go to inpatient. Correct. You know, there's all sorts you of fall ways backwards and you're you may have to start over a period of time. That's what they made him do. Right. Help one time. And um, you know, the part of that is also they do have a limit. And Correct. eventually, you know, you can get kicked out of drug court. It's not just like an endless stream of you're in and then we're just gonna do this forever. It doesn't it doesn't work that way either. I don't no. think they ever kicked him out. Yeah, he didn't get kicked out. He completed whatever was required. But he just took the long route. (laughs) Because he had to restart one time after being in for almost a year. So the first time he got himself in trouble, he literally had to do a restart um, from the Salvation Army. So they didn't make him detox, like go and stay in the... um, But he was in that In the all-male facility. West County. Mm-hmm. A couple times, because I, I always went out and saw him wherever he was mm-hmm. at, but yeah, out in West County, and that was co-ed. Yeah. Whatever that one was, yeah. Do you know if it still exists? I don't know, but it was out West County. No, like, and I out just... Out 92. I don't even know if the Salvation Army is the same. I know that I believe that it's all female now, but it may have, it may not even exist anymore. I'm not sure. I can tell you just from my experience that... The Salvation Army has gone through some mix-ups. I don't know the the specifics of it, but there was um, a line of issues that had occurred about two years ago, and I wouldn't be surprised if they went from co-ed to, to single sex in order to try to kind of avoid from some of that. 
Right. Well, I oh. can tell you when when he was there, it was a solid environment. He did well there. He he um, did. I think it was co-ed though. It think, was because there there were women there too. It's yeah. like I met like friends of his or whatever because I always went once a week to see him. Right. But um, you know, he built a relationship with the pastor that's there, that's the church that's affiliated with it, whatever. And um, he did do well there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I saw him there. And, he, and, did and well. he found his way through that process and then went into a halfway house down there in Daytona and was there for quite a while and then actually came home after that. So right. he, he worked through whatever process to come home. Now, he made it all the way through drug court and actually got off supervision, yes. didn't he? Yeah, Correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. that's what I'm saying. He made it through the halfway house, all the stuff, and came home. <laughs> he was sleeping on the porch here for a while. <laughs> but anyway, yes. Uh, Terry Terry was telling, telling the story earlier before we started the podcast, and essentially when when Josh got back, uh, you know, he would sleep on the porch, and he had a, a blow-up mattress that he had kind of brought with him or whatever and it had a slow leak so he'd wake up in the morning and obviously no one is here so you can't see it but the the porch is uh, wood planks and he'd kind of wake up with like the imprints of the crease of the wood plank like on his cheek uh-huh. and yeah. the parrot yelling at him and the parrot yelling at him yeah, yeah. Porch. but um that was when he got done with salvation army he came here but the halfway house, there was a halfway house. And that's, he did get in trouble at the halfway houses. He got in trouble for smoking the fake weed. And uh, had to restart over. And he got in trouble for one other time and had to start over from scratch. And that was while in the halfway houses. Because that's when they start getting their freedom. They do some dumb stuff. So <laughs> there he went. But it was nothing major. No. They did, he finally did work through that. And right. got released, came home was like free of the drama um, now when he came home um, you know what were the the hopes and expectations at that point for him or for me for you I was hoping to get his shit together <laughs> fair enough I mean that's the hope for every parent right is yeah. that their, their child has their shit together he and found a job he was working again he was crashing here because um, he didn't have any place to go, and at the time, I didn't have any place for him to stay, but on the porch. So, yeah, so he was. But it was summertime, whatever. He's sleeping on the porch. But. Um, and to be fair, we're in Florida, but there's a breeze by the beach, which is where we are. So, yeah, sleeping wow. on the porch is not like a terrible thing. No. Yeah. He was okay. Yeah. With the fans and the whatever, he was fine. Um, I was hoping he would get his shit together. He. He started working construction and doing whatever, but um, yeah, fell into the same old patterns, unfortunately. Do you know, I mean, it's hard to, to say, but do you know how long, or do you remember approximately how long it took before the old patterns started to Never like, took long. Yeah. I, I don't think it was very long. I yeah, never know. took long. He was long. good at hiding it, um, to be honest, especially from a parent that doesn't want to know. Yeah. How's that? So, you know, y- you see what you want to see? Is that a fair assessment? I think that's um, fair. But um, I do know 
Well, I think that you also want to see the best in your child at all of times. Of course. And it's hard and not to see. And you want to be it. supportive, and you want to help them be better. At, at some point, you figure out it's not going so well. And then they move out and do whatever, which is what happened here. And he was working construction, and met a girl, and whatever, moved on, till he ended up with open-heart surgery. <laughs> now... The, uh, how many surgeries did he have? Just the one? Two. Okay. Two open heart surgeries. So the first one, how old was he? Do you remember? It was the year before he passed uh, away. Yeah, it was 19, uh, mm -mm, 2000s. It would have been in the Two, 2000s. 2011. Right. 2011. And, and like February of 2011, um, and he had it down in Halifax. And the doctor was put him like a really tight restrictions. So even for me to go in and see him, I couldn't have my purse with me or any of my stuff with me. They were worried about me giving him drugs, right? Or whatever. Okay. Which I found totally bizarre as a parent. I'm like, why Well, they worry about anybody giving him I drugs. Get it. And I get people it. were sneaking him drugs, obviously. And, and at the time, I was like appalled that that the doctor was being so like rude and abrupt with me, but um, going in and seeing him, he was there for like a total of six months. He had open heart surgery and, and uh, I saw him every day. I, I would go every day, right? Yeah. Um, at some point they moved him from Halifax to like a sister hospital down in Port Orange because um, I needed the bed space at Halifax. For physical rehab, but not addiction rehab. And he was on, still on lockdown down there. Um, and I still, I, I started rotating with his girlfriend every other day. So instead of seeing him every day, I saw him every other day. Whatever. But I'd drive down to Port Orange and see him. Um, and he was in there for several months. So I, I want to say a total of like six months after his open heart surgery. But even through all of that, his open heart surgery was done because he had a vegetative mass in his heart from shooting up. And unfortunately, they kept him on pain meds the entire time he was in their care. And, and they never... Weaned him off. Weaned him off the meds, number one. Number two, because there's a conflict between him living in Flagler County... Okay and getting everything done in Volusia County. When they released him, finally, after like six months, they released him from the hospital. He came home to me. He came home to my house. But he couldn't get any follow-up care for his open-heart surgery. Right. He couldn't get any of the meds. He couldn't get anything. Um, they sent him to the, the clinic. While he goes, stands in line at the clinic in Flagler County, they don't have a heart doctor there, a heart surgeon doctor, whatever. Right. So they couldn't help him. So basically they did this open heart surgery and all this money spent on him as an adult, I didn't have to pay for it, but it was still county or federal Somebody money. Somebody paid for it, yeah. Yeah, correct. And there was no follow-up care. And actually out of all the things, probably the, the thing that makes me the most angry Because unfortunately, 
they didn't get all of the infection. So um, he was in the hospital so long because they kept seeing his white blood cell count up. No, there was something wrong, but they couldn't find it. Right. So they finally released him whenever it got down low enough. But there was no follow-up care. So it continued to basically rot. Yeah. And he started using drugs again. And he said, because of the pain. And he was struggling. He was working. He was here at my house. He was working. He was doing stuff. But struggling. Right? You know what I'm saying? Like in pain, struggling. Yeah. He fell back into drugs. And, um, well, it's got to be difficult at that point in time, too, right? Like, you've already got this addiction that you're trying to deal with, and then you've got legitimate pain. Well, On and, top of and, and an addiction. No and right. no guidance. No. There was no place for him to go at the time. I had no money, so I couldn't help him. Um, everything that had happened had happened in Volusia County, so there was no follow-up care. Well, also, him. that has something to do with some County. of the hospital system, too, doesn't it? As far as, uh, like, the I, I would guess. I don't know. At the time, there was no winning. We, we couldn't find... Again, they were sending them to, like... There was the monthly clinic that they offer, right? Mm -hmm. The free Flagler clinic. County residents. Well, he would go stand in line and wait to see somebody. Um, but nobody could help him because there was no volunteer heart doctors on the freaking roster right. so so he worked and then eventually I think he fell back into old habits and um, six or eight months later after that I mean we're talking almost to the date a year later he was under the knife and passed away right so um, at like Christmas, New Year's Eve, uh, he felt so bad he finally went back to the hospital, and he never got them. In the final half of this episode, you will hear discussion of Crystal's father and Terry's late husband, John. He also suffered with addiction, and both he and Josh struggled with it at the same time. He was able to come out of addiction with the help of AA and his sponsor. We've also lost John due to a heart condition. He was clean at the time. AANA can be helpful tools for those that cannot afford professional counseling because what it provides is a community. Many people focus on the religious aspect of these programs, and there are religious elements which can turn people off. However, the point that is most important is that a community is what is needed. People helping people. I want to take this opportunity to ask you to like, subscribe, and or follow on whichever platform you listen to this podcast. Now we return to Council's Table Podcast. That was it. Now, did he, um, he had an infection? Yeah, and it was in his heart. And they went in to replace the valve that they replaced once already and um, under the 
at the time we finally found a surgeon to do the surgery because that was a project all in itself. Yes. Over the course of a couple of months. Yes. Um, I have some knowledge about that, I remember. Anyway, um, when they finally did the surgery, it was the new hospital down in Ormond. Mm -hmm. And it's a teaching hospital or whatever. So they had this like new mesh and this and that or whatever. So for whatever reasons, he fell into a category where they would do the surgery. But it was experimental. Um, as, as experimental, right. whatever. And um, when he went under the knife that morning, um, they expected to replace two valves. Um, once they got in there, they actually needed to replace three. Okay. He was in surgery for like 13 hours. And when they took him off bypass, he was gone. His heart fell apart. That's that's what I was yeah told is that it had literally sort of fallen apart. Yeah, they wrapped that's it in the we mesh. They did all the stuff, and as soon as they, it, 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 it didn't get all rotted from the inside out. Right. But if he had had follow up care from the first surgery, right, they would have realized there was still infection going on in his heart, and could have probably addressed it. Now but because he, of the health system, the way it's set up, right. he couldn't get any help. Did they, did he, um, is there any, do we know what caused the infection? Yeah, yes. cotton fever. Um, yes, the, the doctor, the surgeon that did the second surgery explained to me and my husband, as we're sitting there getting told he's gone, um, that even though he may have used clean needles, they were using a spoon in the cigarette butts or something when they cook the when they break up the pills. Yeah. Um, they apparently pull it through a cigarette butt to filter out the impurities okay. before they inject it. If they're sharing that spoon in that cigarette butt, they're sharing that bacteria that gets in the bloodstream. Blah blah blah. Right. So, so yeah, a fiber from the cigarette butt ended up going into his bloodstream. That, that. There is a process they call cotton fever, and addicts that use intravenously, it's literally like having the flu. Well, um, the doctor I've did sat, not say that. To I me. sat with him through cotton fever multiple times. Well, the doctor didn't say that to me, but the doctor did say that using the spoon and the cigarette butt from right. somebody else introduced a bacteria in his bloodstream. That's what I was told. I mean, yeah. So it's, <clears throat> I know we talk a lot about clean needles, right? He had a clean needles. Right, yeah. but even the use of a clean needle can still be tainted with cross-contamination when you've got some other part of the process that you're sharing with another person. Correct. Yep. And that's what the doctor told me. The sitting when they told me he was dead. All right, so speaking as family members that have kind of gone through the experience of a loved one going through the process, and then ultimately after the process was over, you know, still suffering the loss that everyone was trying to avoid, um, you know, what, what do you... Do you think the drug court would be useful for everybody or, or anybody, or or what are your thoughts sort of on the effectiveness of a drug court? 
Drug court's going to work great for somebody at the very beginning of addiction, but it's not going to, unless, if, if they're truly um, active in active addiction and don't want the help, you can't save somebody that doesn't want to be saved. So, and he wanted to be saved once or twice, but you got to be able to hold on to that too, you know, and there was to a point where he just gave up. Drug court is great, though, and did buy us plenty of time, and it was clean time. He was clean. He was sober. He was himself, and that was beautiful. Okay. So drug court gave you some years that you may not have had? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think um, if it hadn't been for the health issues with his heart, he might have survived. But with the heart issues... And the pain... And the pain and the difficulty of getting him help with the heart issues and the conflict between Flagler County, Volusia County, you know what I'm saying, all the stuff, the logistics of it all. Right. Um, we lost him. I think that's the bottom line. Now, if somebody wants to get the help and wants to make the change, uh, do you feel like drug court is a a useful tool. Absolutely. Absolutely. As long as they get the counseling and the stuff to go with it. Now, since then, Break the Cycle also um, participates with Drug Corps, and Break the Cycle is great. Um, In fact, I even worked for the last few years for one of the owners of Break the Cycle. Um, And I can tell you that Break the Cycle did help my dad get through his stuff. They gave him tools and helped him find help. Um, But he ended up going the opposite direction. Instead of going to Volusia, he went to St. John's. And St. John's actually did offer more there. Um, They have Epic there, right? They do have Epic there. And that is actually where Break the Cycle sent my father was to Epic. Epic was great for him. So I will say, maybe Flagler County is lacking in the backup support for those that really want to change. Okay. Uh, Because they were having to go elsewhere. Volusia County, Flagler County. Flagler County didn't have it. They were going to either St. John's. Our family members ended up in St. John's or in Volusia. And not everybody can work an AA like AA doesn't work for everybody and um, you know it was it, two different things it, AA and the 12 step program and, and that religious based thing were great for my father and it was the exact opposite for my brother the it, exact it, it opposite right rather than switching him on and getting him involved it was a huge turn off but it was that you know they forced you to focus on your higher power and for him he needed to focus on his demons so he could tame them but for my dad that was the exact opposite. He needed the Bible. He needed that structure. Everybody's different. So that is also something that, like, I always kind of wish that there was another option. 12-step program is fine and dandy, but it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to have the Bible shoved up, up your butt either. You know what I'm saying? There can be um, spiritualism without, without having religion forced down your throat. And for Josh, that was totally a thing. Right. With my dad, he, his father was Pentecostal minister. Like, he's rolled right into that. That made him comfortable. But I feel like there should always be another option. Now, at the time that you all were going through the process, um, 
we have Stuart Marchman in this area. Yes. Um, yeah. Did you have any dealings with Stuart Marchman? Oh, yeah. So they, yes. They were in there for the short term, but only short term, like three days or. Seventy-two yeah. hours or whatever. Um, when I had walked in on my dad shooting up, I had told him to have fun because he was being Baker acted the next day, and before I even had the chance to go Baker act him, he went and turned himself in. Was it to, a Baker act or a Marchman act? Well, uh, I, I was just threatening. Okay. It, but it would have been a Marchman act. Okay. Um, but in the moment, it was a threat. I didn't even get the opportunity to do it because he just went and turned himself into Stuart Marchman that day and cold cut quit, major Xanax addiction, alcoholism, and he was at that time currently also intravenously yeah. using yeah. opiates. So, and he, and like they didn't want him to call, they literally called me because he had signed his death sentence by cold cut quitting the huge amounts of Xanax that he was prescribed. They wanted, so he was actually on three... Three well, major yeah, substances. Three substances that are difficult and two and that are dangerous to correct. get off of immediately. Exactly. But had been doing it for a while and got busted by his daughter. Yeah. And he did. He went in and cold cut quit. Um, and I, we, I checked on him a few times while he was there, but at that point then he just started getting angry. And as soon as he made it through whatever time he had agreed upon there he went straight to they gave him they got him involved in break the cycle which helped him get into epic and gave him other options but again he had to leave county yeah he had to leave the county he couldn't stay here and he was physically in a mess now he was in na or AA. aa he was in AA. aa and he did aa locally correct Yes. He did AA locally, yeah, but he did AA everywhere. It didn't matter. Like, when he showed back up in Flagler, he had already been working AA. And but he was still physically a mess. Yeah. Like, falling down and, like... Shaking nonstop, yeah, twitches, weird stuff. He was still, like, stuff. dealing with, the, I think, the Xanax, maybe? The Xanax can, is very yeah. difficult and dangerous to get off of. Like yeah, that. so right. he was still dealing with that. So, I mean, literally, he would fall down. He was a mess. Um, getting back to just the core system for a moment, I think we're almost done here. Um, do you think that incarceration would have been a tool that would have helped Josh? Probably not. Probably not? Probably not. What do you think, Crystal? I think in the long run, if he had actually, because he did a little jail time, but if he had done prison time, it probably just would have made him worse, not better. He liked to buck everything. He liked to buck everything. The only thing I wished that was easier was, like... I think... Go ahead. Plenty of people start addiction in their late teens, early 20s. They get exposed to whatever, right? Well, how many kids do you know that get into fights? Plenty. 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 If you are 18 and you get in an ugly fight and end up with a um, with a violent felony, you do not qualify for drug court. And that makes me sad because not everybody that has a violent felony is violent. You know what I'm saying? Like, circumstances are circumstances. Everybody gets put in a bad predicament. And my time frame was pushed because we didn't want him to get out of jail. We didn't want him to have the opportunity to mess up anything else because his circumstances in that scenario were just right. Right. It was Hard right to get it. I couldn't save his friend. His friend already had a violent felony. 
because I, I mean, his mom like literally almost was she was reluctant to do it because it meant that she had to press charges on her son too. He ended up spending prison time over that. Right. You know, it was major money that those boys took. So, um, and it made me, you know, she was she to this day is probably still a little mad at me because she put her her son in prison so that I could give my brother the opportunity. Now, last question, and we'll end it. Um, I have a certain young man in mind that I've represented a couple of times that's gone through drug court, and he's had a long road, and um, it did eventually end up with his incarceration. Now, he was able to stay in county, and he had to do every day of a county sentence. He's still doing it currently, but he's been through three rehabs, um, and desperately relies on Suboxone um, to try to you know fight back a, an addiction that he has and he went in at the age of 18 into drug court um, with an active addiction with uh, IV use like he was shooting up at, at, at 17, 18 years old right. just graduated high school um, knowing him I believe that he wants to be sober I do and I know that he has support. I know he has a family that cares for him. You know, with that situation laid out in front of you, you know, is there anything that you would say to somebody in, in that circumstance? Other than to just if if you even if you hate AA or NA, it's so worth it's so worth just the tools that, like, it's so worth the tools and it's worth the parents going and doing Al Anon and stuff the support system so that they understand things better so the continued counseling the necessity for a group um, a support system because people that have gone through it that can provide insight if if it was my kid and I had a choice again I would send him three states away where he knows nobody with some kind of a group or a support system or whatever, so he's like in a halfway house or a camp or whatever, where they go do, you know, the fucking wilderness shit or, or whatever, but he's totally removed from his environment, all the things that trigger him, all the things he wants to, you know, that make them go back to where they were, Yeah. and instead starts a whole new life where they can be free of that and start building new habits and new things that they enjoy. New friends, yeah. Yeah, so... I believe we call that people, places, and things. Well, yeah. well, but you know what I'm saying. So, if, if that... If if I had known how it was going to go with Josh, I would have sent him three states away. Or five states away. And yes, an addict's always going to be an addict. And if they want to find the shit, they're going to find it. But if they really want to, like move on and you give them like an environment where they can function and thrive he might have made it I think the the main word that you said there was live on yeah yeah because that's what it's all about is we want these people to live on right right yeah, but but thrive too and be happy because they're not gonna leave the drugs alone if they don't find a new way to be happy and there's not a quality of life if you're not finding some sort of pleasure, you know? You know, whether it's chopping trees or freaking working on a farm or whatever, right? Absolutely. Um, but just out of the environment and doing something else. And I will say that, and this doesn't need to be on your thing, but 
um, Joshi's girlfriend, who was using with him, had to leave the area and go someplace else mm-hmm. to find her sobriety. Both the loves and, of and, his life and, and, had to leave the area. And the girlfriend that loved him forever, same, same. She was using while he was still alive. And both of them went, one went to South Florida, the other one went to the West Coast. But both of them had to totally remove themselves from the environment and build a new life with new friends and new people and stay there for a while, like years. Yeah. Not a few months, not six months, not a year, but years. Yeah, one was gone for like five years, the other one's still there. And, And find a way to be happy without the drugs, right? And and not be around people that are going to remind them or or be handing them the drugs or whatever, right? Absolutely. And so, and both those girls are alive today and well and living good lives. That's beautiful. So, even if he didn't make it, they did And they were all using together, so. All right. Well, I want to thank you both for doing this. Yes, sir. Um, This was Council's Table. Thank you for listening to Council's Table. I want to take these last moments to reflect on something Crystal said. Drug court is great, and it did buy us time. It was clean time. He was clean, he was sober, and that was beautiful. If for no other reason than giving those that love addicts more time, drug courts are worth every penny. However, the final goal is saving lives. Every time I help someone enter treatment, it is done with one goal in mind. Trying to help my client get back to life, and trying to help those that love them get back to life as well. Please support your local drug courts and other avenues of treatment. Our communities are built off all of us, and when one person gets better, it affects all of us. With that being said, I thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe or follow. And once again, this was Council's Table Podcast.